If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3 as we're going to look at the healing touch of Jesus upon our lives and what we do with that. And, you know, as you're turning there, listen to these extremes some people will go to in order to prolong their life. We're told in an underground storage site near Los Angeles, a dozen men and women lie in capsules that look like giant vacuum flasks. Their bodies are wrapped in tin foil. I think it's to protect them from freezer burn. I'm not sure on that one. Don't quote me on it. But remove the foil and a thin layer of frost covers their faces. An icy mist of liquid nitrogen clings around each body. These people have been dead for some years. But centuries from now, attempts may be made to bring them back to life again. They chose this odd method of entombment in the hope that At some time in the future, when medical science has improved far beyond today's standards, they will be thawed from their deep frozen state and cured of the disease that killed them. Some of the corpses have been there since 1967. They could be there for hundreds of years because if the person died from a particular form of cancer, it could take that long before an effective cure is found. I find it amazing the amount of time, money that is spent to preserve these physical bodies which are temporary. And I don't want to shock you with this statement, but every medical study ever conducted has concluded that 100% of all Americans will eventually die. I'm a medical person. I know this. This is a fact. Trust me on this. Also, another report from March 23, 2010, uh, was a report released by the U.S. Department of Commerce, and it revealed that Americans spend an astonishing $14 trillion a year on countless, usually failed attempts to look cool. I don't even know what that means. $14 trillion, I think they got ripped off. The amount Americans spend trying to look like they don't care how they look is greater than the GDPs of Sweden, Brazil, and Egypt combined. Looking cool, which the report defines as the outward projection of an appealing and often inviolable image of oneself that others perceive as requiring little to no effort, appears to be a nationwide obsession. I find that funny. They want to look like they did nothing to themselves, but they spent $14 trillion making it look like they did nothing to themselves. My response is, don't do nothing. It's cheaper. It's crazy on how much money is spent in cosmetic surgery back in 2010 10 billion dollars so we're spending trillions of dollars a year to look cool billions of dollars a year to look good younger whatever and what's the end result death <laughs> it's this is easy now I'm not here, I'm here to say that we're not to take care of ourselves, because we are. Our bodies are the temple of God. We should take care of ourselves. But people go to the extreme. I remember J. Vernon McGee um, had this encounter with this woman who was very upset in his church because women were putting on makeup. And I love J. Vernon's response. And, you know, he has that southern drawl, and he said, Madam, if the barn needs to be painted, paint the barn. Yeah, just take care of yourself, you know? And, and here's the thing. We spend all this money, so much time of our lives trying to preserve these lives, and we still die. And when it comes to eternity, we do nothing about it. They haven't been prepared to meet their maker. Their spiritual lives are empty. They're bankrupt. And think about it. When I die, where do I go? I go to be with the Lord. I don't want to go in a freezer. 
I'm sorry, don't wake me up. I don't want to be like Lazarus, really. When I'm dead and I'm with Jesus, don't, I don't want to come back, right? You see the perspective? You know, yes, take care of your bodies. I think that's a great thing to do. But eventually we are going to die, and the most important thing we can do is prepare to meet our maker. And many people have no clue about that. In our study this evening, we're going to see Jesus heal multitudes of people physically. But tragically, for the most part, their spirits weren't moved. And even though they were healed of these illnesses, they were eventually going to die of something else. And again, unprepared to meet their maker. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And let's see what the Lord has for us this evening as we look at his word. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem, Idiomea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. And he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Now, yes, the religious leaders continue to reject Jesus for the most part. And he takes his men to the area around the Sea of Galilee. And word gets out. Jesus is here. And multitudes are coming to him to be touched by him. From Judah, Jerusalem, Idiomea in the south to the east of the Jordan River and all the way up to the north, Tyre and Sidon? And could you imagine the first person being healed by Jesus? I'm healed. I could walk. I could see. Whatever. And I'm sure the crowds would press in even more. I want to be touched. I want to be healed. And Jesus felt it's pretty dangerous. Get a boat ready just in case I need to get out of here because I don't want to be crushed by all these people. And it wasn't just the physical diseases that Jesus was healing. He delivered those that were demon-possessed. And I can't imagine the number of people that kept coming and coming and all the joy, the celebration that took place as these people were healed, as they were set free from the bondage they were in. Mark 3.10 says, For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. The implication here is that whosoever came to him to be healed he did heal. And when they touched Jesus, it wasn't, not, it wasn't just like a surface touch. They felt this influence upon their lives. They were free of their afflictions. They knew something happened. And understand, it wasn't that they came to Jesus, you know, I've got this sinus infection or a toothache or something. These people were desperate. Their doctors couldn't help them. And if you think about it, if this wasn't a life-threatening illness that these people had, why would they travel so far to come to Jesus? Because the sinus infection would finally clear up, the cough would go away or whatever. These people were sick. There was nowhere else to go. They knew Jesus could heal. And, hey, we have nothing else to do. Let's go to Jesus. I mean, put yourself in their situation. If you had family, a friend who was dying and the doctors gave up, there's no hope. And you hear about this man named Jesus who's healing people along the Sea of Galilee, what are you going to do? I mean, you're going to go and bring your friend, your family member to Jesus. You're going to do all that you can so he could be healed. Now, 
it had to be chaotic. Think about it. It's not just the people with the physical illnesses, like I said. Those that were demon-possessed. So as Jesus is coming by, you know, these demons are crying out, you know, that you are the Son of God. They're falling on the ground. Think about the chaos going on there. It must have been incredible. And again, that's why Jesus had that getaway boat, just in case. Now, here's the thing. Was this the main reason for Jesus' coming, to heal people physically? Well, no. Jesus used these miracles to authenticate his ministry, to show people who he is, that he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets spoke of. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison? He was placed there by Herod for coming against his marriage to his brother's wife for committing adultery. And I can picture John. He's discouraged. You know, you know what? And he tells his disciples, go ask Jesus. Are you the one? Or maybe we should look for another. Why was he so discouraged? Because he's in prison. He doesn't want to be in prison. He wants to be out there. He wants to be telling people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the two disciples come to Jesus. And they ask him, John wants to know, are you the one? Should we look for another? And Jesus tells these men, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Isn't it interesting he doesn't answer the question? He doesn't tell the disciples of John, yeah, go tell John I'm the one. No, he says, look, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are hearing. In other words, what the Old Testament prophets spoke about the Messiah, I'm doing. You go tell John what you see and hear. And that will, that's going to authenticate my ministry, who I am. Yes, I am the Messiah. But again, that wasn't the primary purpose of Jesus' coming. In Mark chapter 1, verse, verses 14 and 15, we're told, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, this is the purpose that he came to heal people spiritually. He was bringing good news to a world in darkness, a world drowning in sin. He called for them to repent of their sins and to come to him, to receive him into their lives, and their sins will be forgiven. He wanted to point people back to God and provide a way to God through him. He's the door. And the message hasn't changed today. We think it has. You know, we got to update the message because we're living in different times. It's the 21st century, man. This stuff was way back. We got to update it, really? God needs updating? I don't think so. It's the same message. The message hasn't changed. You need to repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I mean, do you think our world is in sin right now? Yeah, just turn on the news. Look at what's going on in the world. The atrocities that are taking place in our country and, like I said, around the world. And we know as we read the Bible that it's only going to get worse before the Lord comes. Well, that's not a lot of hope. No, I don't have that hope in the world. My hope is in Jesus. That's what I give to people. People want to know what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on because I know the story. I was told what's going to take place. 
And look, and you could explain to people, look, we see this one world religion coming together. All the religions coming together. The Bible says that. We see a one world government. The Bible says that. We see the love of many growing cold. Yeah. So it's the same gospel message we're bringing. But that wasn't the reason the people were coming to Jesus, to be healed spiritually. They were, being, they were coming to Jesus to be healed physically. I don't think they really cared about the good news, that Jesus is the Messiah. I think they cared about their own physical problems. And yeah, I can understand that. You know, remember on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode through Jerusalem as Messiah the King. And the people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one. The one for what? That's going to free us from our sins? No, 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 no. This is the one who's going to free us from our Roman bondage. And when that didn't take place, what were they saying a few days later? Crucify him. You see? The wrong message. And think about the thousands upon thousands of people that gathered around Jesus. And yet there wasn't a large number of people turning to him, repenting of their sins. Remember the ten lepers who were cleansed by Jesus of their leprosy? Cleansed physically? How many of those ten turned to God and were cleansed spiritually? Only one of those ten men recognized Jesus and repented of his sins. What about the other nine? They weren't interested in anything but their physical health. And tragically, if they didn't repent of their sins and come to Jesus, they would die and be eternally separated from God. In John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, which would make the crowd that day that were fed by Jesus some fifteen to 20,000 people, including the women and children. And as the people are fed, Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee and the people track him down. And you start reading, they think, oh, this is great. They're hungering and thirsting after God. They're seeking after Jesus. But that's not true. They didn't come to receive forgiveness of their sins, that Jesus is the Son of God. But in John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, we're told Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. You see, what were they more concerned about? Locks and bagels or whatever. They wanted their physical appetite met. That's, they were hungry physically. But God wanted to feed them spiritually. They, they were passing up the bread of life, the living water. And I guess the question we can ask after looking at all of this is this. Was Jesus used by the people for their own personal needs? I guess so. Did they take advantage of him? I guess. But Jesus reached out to them. Why? Because he always gave people an opportunity to turn to him. He had compassion on them, on their physical needs. And he wanted to touch their lives. He gave them a chance, like I said, but it's always their choice. And think about it. After some three years of teaching and ministering and reaching out to people and healing people, how many people were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? 120? Yes, there were other believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus appeared to 500 of the brethren after his resurrection. But when you consider the thousands upon thousands of lives that he touched, 
There's only a small number that truly received him into their lives. Now, as we look at that, we think, well, how could that be? Well, here's the thing. When things are going bad in our lives, when our finances are low, when our job's in jeopardy, when our marriage is on the rocks or whatever, who do we run to? People a lot of times run to God, pleading with him and interceding for the problem they're in. And then once the problem is over, it's taken care of, we're back to our old ways, you know, keeping God at a distance, only to be used again in case of emergency. You know, don't break the glass unless there's a real fire. And that's wrong. And yeah, this is common for the unbeliever, you know, either blaming God for what's happened, even though they don't believe in him, or crying out to God to heal the situation they're in. And does God intercede? Yes, he does from time to time. He absolutely does. Even with the unsaved, because they may turn to him. They may receive him. It's, he gives them an opportunity. Now, I want to focus on, with the remainder of our time this evening, the believer. You know, for some Christians, their walk of faith is more of a crisis-to-crisis relationship that they have with God. What I mean is this, you know, yes, they call themselves Christians, they go to church when it fits into their schedule, they read the Bible when they can find the time, and then when disaster strikes, a crisis comes their way, they're crying out to God, why God, why is this happening? Or they're asking God to heal the situation, and Guess what? They're in church, they're in fellowship, they're reading their Bibles. We, we saw this you know, years ago when uh, the, the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers, the Gulf War, War started. A crisis caused churches to be filled. And then what happened? You know, back, things got better. Just got back to our old ways. And they fall right back to following Jesus at a distance, trying to fit him in with their busy schedules until the next problem or crisis arises. There were a lot of Christians who, when they saw that what happened in America with the Twin Towers and the war in the Middle East, this is it, the Lord's coming back. He didn't. Why are we discouraged by that? Did God say that after the Twin Towers are destroyed that he's coming back? No, he didn't. He gave us the seasons. And as I look at things, man, as I see what, what's going on in the Middle East with Iran and Russia and the, the deals that they're making together, that if Israel ever attacks Iran, Russia will be involved in that war. And it sounds very much like what would take place in Ezekiel 38 and 39. How close are we? I don't know. Paul says that he was looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about that. That was almost 2,000 years ago. He was looking forward to the Lord's return back then. He was excited about it. Why aren't we? You know, when I first got saved, man, there was such excitement about the Lord's return. I guarantee you, you go into most churches today, and they don't even talk about it. Dealing with the book of Revelation, are you kidding me? It's too controversial. But where is your hope then? My hope is in the return of the Lord. Will I see it in my lifetime? Maybe, maybe not. But I know either way I'm going to see him. What a comfort that is. What a joy that is. We need to walk by faith, guys. 
moment by moment, day by day, week by week, and year by year. Just trusting in the Lord, trusting in what his word is telling us. But many times we don't, and we try to fix things. Remember the, the story of the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac and Rebekah? Esau was a man's man. He was a rugged type of guy, outdoorsman. Jacob was more of, you know, I don't want to say mama's boy, but I will. I'll say mama's boy because I don't have a better phrase for him. And as it was time to deliver these twin boys, Esau was born first. And Jacob, not wanting to be last, even in the womb, grabbed the heel of Esau. And thus his name, Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter, conniver, deceitful. What's interesting to me is that before these boys were born, God spoke to Rebekah. And this is what the Lord said to Rebekah. And I'm sure that Jacob was well, or Isaac, excuse me, was well aware of this. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Isn't that interesting? That is a promise to Jacob before he was even born. Even though he was going to be the younger, he would be stronger, he would be served by Esau, and he would get the blessings. But what is interesting is instead of believing in the promises of God, Jacob spent his whole life trying to get what God had already promised him. God already promised him that. But no, I'm going to connive my way into this. I'm going to scheme. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to get this on my own. Well, as the boys grew up, Esau one day was hunting. And, you know, he didn't do very good that day. He didn't catch anything. And he was starving craving food he came home and as he came home he smelled some stew that his brother Jacob was cooking and Esau man he just wanted a a bowl of that soup and Jacob said hey you know what give me your birthright something that was reserved for the eldest son and yet promised to Jacob already and Esau didn't really care about the birthright at this point I want some food I'm hungry I need to feed my Bodily appetite. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter, deceiver. And the story doesn't end there. Isaac is advanced in age now. He's preparing to die. His eyesight is very bad. And as he is preparing to die, he asks his eldest son to catch some venison for him and cook it up the way he likes it, and then I'll give you the blessing, Esau. Again, Isaac, I'm sure, knew that God promised this blessing to Jacob. But he didn't care. Isaac, he, or Isaac said to, to Esau, go get me some venison, cook it up, and I'm going to give you the blessing then. Well, as he goes out to hunt for this venison, Rebekah heard what was happening, and she says, look, Jacob, disguise yourself like your brother. Place some goat's hair so you'd be hairy like your brother. How hairy was this guy? I mean, I read that, I'm thinking, man, you got to shave a little or use some nair or something. If your, your arms are like a, goat, like a goat, there's a problem there. Not only that, but put on Esau's clothes so you smell like him. He had that outdoor smell, you know? 
And Rebekah cooks up this meal for her husband, gives it to Jacob to take to his father Isaac. And again, Isaac can't see real well, but he can feel, he can smell. And so here comes Jacob. And Isaac is how did, surprised. How did you get here so fast? Oh, God's good. Now he's getting God involved in this. Caught the, caught the venison, got it here, cooked it up. Man, this is great. Man, you don't really sound like Esau. Kind of feel like Esau, smell like him. And so he eats the food. And, ja- and Isaac blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau. And Jacob leaves. And God's timing is amazing here. Jacob walks out, and who comes in? Esau. Hey, Dad, I got the venison. It's all cooked up for you. Eat it. I'm ready for the blessing. Who are you? I just, I thought you were just here, right? The blessing was already given. And Esau knew what happened. He said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And so Esau wants to kill Jacob. And as word gets out of his plan, as Rebekah hears that es- what Esau wants to do, she sends Jacob to her brother Laban's house until this passes over, thinking it's, it'll just be a short time. Well, tragically, Rebekah dies before Jacob even comes back home. It's lasted some 20 years. And so at his uncle, on his way to his uncle Laban's house, Jacob encounters God in the city of Luz, which was changed to Bethel, or house of God. And in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 21, it says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Jacob is making a vow to serve God. Well, not exactly. What Jacob is saying is, look, God, if you take care of me, if you do this, 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 and this, I'm with you, man. Really? That's not the kind of relationship that God desired back then, nor is it the kind of relationship God desires with us today. God wants us to serve him that no matter what comes our way, what comes upon our lives. For Jacob, he was not broken yet. He was still a supplanter. He was still a deceiver. He was still a conniver. And he's trying to get what he wanted instead of trusting upon the Lord. And God is trying to teach him lessons of faith here. So now spends 20 years at Laban's house. He gets married. He's got all these kids. And God calls him to return to Bethel. Why? Well, that's where he encountered God. Come back to the house of God. How important. And, you know, for us, as we drift away from God, he calls us back to Bethel, to the place where we encountered him, to develop that relationship with him once again. Think, oh, story's got to get better now for Jacob. No, he's still not broken yet. As Jacob is obeying the Lord, he's returning home, now he gets word that his brother Esau is coming after him. And it's not just Esau. He's got 400 men with him. And Jacob doesn't know if Esau is coming to kill him or to welcome him back home. So his back is up against the wall. And Jacob cries out to God and the Lord appears to Jacob during the night. But again, he's not broken yet. 
Not at this point, not at all. And we're told that Jacob wrestled with God all night, refusing to give in, refusing to be broken until the Lord touched the socket of his hip, until the Lord crippled him. I don't know why some people think that we can wrestle with Almighty God in these puny bodies and win. He's Almighty God. And some people read that story, oh, look, we just got to wrestle with God and God will give us what we want. Really? Is that what you get out of the story? Because I don't. I mean, if my God can be taken care of by me, I mean, if I'm lucky, I'm 5'6". And I don't think I've ever hit anyone. I've tried to hit people before, but I don't think I've ever really hit anyone. And I'm going to take care of God? I mean, I, I watch some of these boxers, man, and I think, oh, man, that would be really cool to be a boxer. And then these guys get knocked out. I'm like, no, that's not cool. So how do we wrestle with God? We can't. I think it's just like, you know, when I was younger, I was in junior high. And again, I was a lot smaller. I wasn't even five feet tall at that time or 100 pounds. I was probably in my 80 pounds at that time. And one of my friends, we got into this fight, and this guy was tall. He was probably, I don't know, six feet tall maybe. He was tall compared to me, who was not even five feet. And we got into this fight. And being a little guy, why? I don't know. What, we have this crazy thing that, yeah, we could fight anyone. And I'm, so I'm there, and I'm you know, getting ready to hit him. And all he does, and this is so embarrassing, I'm not even sure why I'm telling you, but all he does is he puts out his hand like this, and he puts it on my forehead. And now I'm out here, and I can't even hit him. I think that's what's going on here with God. God's, you know, let me know when you're done, son. You know? It's not like he was going to win this battle. And then the Lord cripples him. Okay, Jacob, you're not going to be able to rely on yourself anymore. And the Lord said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob, heel catcher, conniver, schemer, you know. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. That's interesting. He crippled Jacob in one of the strongest muscles of the body. This guy who tricked and connived his way through life to get what he wanted is not going to be able to run anymore. He's going to have to trust in God on this one. Totally rely on him. And, you know, we see God change his name. Now you're going to be governed by God, Israel. Not going to be a schemer, conniver, supplanter. But Israel, governed by God. And it was this crisis situation that broke Jacob to the point of him surrendering unto God no matter what would happen. And I think about each of us this evening, where are we at? Are we in control of our life? Are we scheming, doing whatever we want to get what we want? Is our back against the wall and we're wrestling with God and we're not going to let go? Sometimes it's best just to say uncle, right? Lord, you know what's best. And if God wins, which he wins all the time, but if we win, we lose. Because God knows what's best for our lives. 
We need God to change us from, you know, that heel catcher, supplanter, conniver to man and woman of God, governed by God, Israel. And God wants to touch our life, but he won't force us. God wants to transform our lives, but again, he won't force us. He wants us to surrender totally to him. Don't place your life in cold storage. Let it be warmed by God's love and filled with the Spirit. Now, you know, some deny this. They think, oh, God doesn't heal like he did, you know, back then. That was only for the first century church. I disagree. I think God still heals people all the time. But a lot of the spiritual healing. Do you realize that we were dead Spiritually speaking, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, God has made us alive again, spiritually speaking. Now we can commune with God through Jesus Christ. As we have surrendered our life to him, may we do so fully, completely. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I don't know why we get so confused in this area, but the enemy wants to rip you off, steal your life away, to kill you and destroy all that you have. And he'll do it even with us as Christians. As he dangles these things in front of us and we go after him. But Jesus wants to give us life, abundant life, that's found in him. What what a healing. What a wonderful life we can have. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But look at the Old Testament prophets. Was it easy for them? Look at the life of Paul. Was it easy for him? Look at the life of the disciples. Was it easy for them? No. But they trusted in the Lord. And that's the hard part. For whatever reason, we think sometimes that, you know, when we become a Christian and we're serving the Lord, we're out ministering for him. You know, Lord, you know what I'm doing here. Well, why is all this happening to me then? Because in this world, you will have tribulation. And think about your life. Your life is a living witness of what God is doing in you. People are watching everything you do and say. We witness through our lives. Paul, I think it was Paul or Peter said that we're living epistles. We're books, letters that people are reading about our Lord. We're ambassadors for Christ, Paul said representatives of him. And we need to understand that. Because, yes, it's going to be hard out there. We all know that. But, boy, there is one we can go to and cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. I'll share a story with you. And you'll see what I mean, how we can let situations really destroy our lives really cause us to drop out of the race that God has placed us in as Christians. 
Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Ziva Flood went in with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa, to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericsons, and the four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt led of the Lord to set out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Endolora, they were rebuffed by the chief who would not let them enter his own town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Ziva Flood, a tiny woman only four feet eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus. And in fact, she succeeded, but there was no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In, the, in time, the Ericsons decided they had had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Ziva Flood remained near Endelora to go on alone. I mean, can you imagine that? Then, of all things, Ziva found herself pregnant in the middle of a primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born who they named Anna. They deli the delivery, however, was exhausting, and Ziva Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days. Inside David Flood, something snapped in that moment. He dug, dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. Sweden. I've lost my wife, and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. Reminds me so much of Jacob. All things are against me, when in reality they weren't. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. And within eight months, both the the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. This family loved the little girl and were afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. That is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hursts enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter, then a son. In time, her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area, and Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course, she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. There, in a primitive setting, was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Ziva Flood. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight for a college faculty member who, she knew, could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded. Well, the instructor summarized the story. 
was about missionaries who had come to Andalora long ago. The birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ. And how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. Today there were 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Ziva Flood. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with a gift of a vacation to Sweden. There Aggie sought to find her real father, an old man now. David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still better, he had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God, because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Anna, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffed. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And he turned his face back to the wall. And Aggie stroked his face and then continued undotted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win the whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. And the old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed and he began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. And over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America And within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. Amazing story, but it's not even over yet. A few years later, the Hearst were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, when a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the National Church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Ziva Flood. Yes, madam, the man replied in French, his words then being translated in English. It was Ziva Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug, and then he continued, You must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that is exactly what Aggie Hurst and her husband did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. 
The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. And later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12, 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He then followed with Psalm 126.5, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. I don't know about you, but that's a tough one, isn't it? But we are so limited in what we know. Like I said, Jacob, when his life was a mess, he said, all things are against me, and they weren't. God was working for him. And I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what you're going through. And maybe you feel that all things are against you, but they're not. And will we know why we're going through all the things we're going through on this side of eternity? Maybe not. But can we trust that the Lord is working? That there are reasons things happen? I mean, I can't imagine losing my wife in the mission field at the age of 27 after she just gave birth. And this man, you know, I wonder what would have happened if there was some brothers there that would have surrounded him and prayed for him and encouraged him. We need each other. But there wasn't and he had given up. And look at what happened in his life because he just gave up on God. God didn't give up on him. How do I know that? Look at what happened in his life. Look who he brought back, this girl who he gave away years before. Now, before he dies, he has an encounter with her and comes back to the God he loved at one time. Turn to Isaiah 55. Because if you're struggling this evening, hopefully these words will truly minister your heart and encourage you. In Isaiah 55, we're going to read verses 8 through 13. And listen to what we're told. The Lord said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. God wants us to understand something that is very simple here. He is God, and we're not. I know, brilliant, isn't it? Very simple, though, but isn't that hard many times in our lives? God doesn't think like we think. He knows everything. Not only that, but God doesn't act the way we do, and I'm thankful for that. His actions are right, they're just, they're fair, they're good. And for those who think you're really smart, 
God wants you to know that if you were to compare his thoughts with your thoughts and your actions to his actions, they're as far as the heavens are higher than the earth apart. It's been estimated that the universe is some 12 billion light years. Wow. And it's expanding, they're saying. They, they, this is just a guess, 12 billion. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. To give you an idea of the enormity of our universe, if you were to jump on a light beam, you would be able to circle the earth seven and a half times in a second. So imagine 12 billion light years. You can't even do the math. That's why they use light years. And it says, the Bible says God measures the universe with the span of his hand. You see, if it only took intellect to believe in God, we wouldn't need faith, would we? And it doesn't mean we turn off our brains when we become Christians, but we can't fully understand an infinite God with our finite minds. And thus we have to believe by faith what God is doing and what he said. We have to trust in him. Think about it. How could God be eternal? How could he always have existed? I don't get it. I can't explain it to you. I don't understand how that can be. Because for me, there comes a starting point of everything. But yet the Bible says he's always existed. I have to believe that by faith. How does the Trinity work? I know that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God manifested in three distinct persons, I believe it by faith. You see, as you look at Jacob, he wasn't the firstborn. He wasn't entitled to the rights of the firstborn. And yet, what did God say? The older shall serve the younger. The younger is going to get the blessing. How was he going to do that? Jacob was trying to figure it out. I'm going to have to scheme, connive to get it. We don't have to figure God out, guys. We have to trust him. Because as we get in the way, we mess things up. Spurgeon put it like this. He said, you may conclude that it is not intended that you should understand the infinite. For you are told that his thoughts and ways are far above you. But you are required to seek him while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Well, where would we find that peace? Where can we find rest? In the Lord. Look at verses 10 and 11 here in Isaiah 55. He's the one that refreshes us. He's the one that gives us the rest that we need. In the Middle East, where the rain is a commodity, the land's dry, it's hard, but when the rain comes, it's like seemingly overnight the land bursts forth with vegetation. The life was already in the ground and needed water to spring forth. And that same The same idea is true of our hearts. As God's word is spoken, the refreshing waters of the Holy Spirit break up that hardness of our hearts and it brings forth life in us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's not only starts our our relationship with God, but we grow in our relationship with God as we read the word of God, apply the word of God to our lives. And as you do, as you submit to the Lord, as you taken his word, opened up to you by the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 says, You shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, is that speaking of the kingdom age? Yeah, I think it is. But God can bring those refreshing times into our lives, that joy in our lives. 
We need to trust in the Almighty God who knows all things and not rely on what we know. I mean, for me, this was given to me very clearly several weeks back. We were at a shopping mall in Green Bay, and my wife was looking for something at one of the stores, and I said, you know, she had back surgery, so I said, yeah, I'll just go in and take a look and see if I can find it. And the store I was looking for wasn't there any longer. So, I mean, I went through the whole mall, all over the place, looking for this store. Now, I got lost. Go figure, right? I got lost in this shopping mall. It was incredible. I don't know how, but I did. And I figured, okay, because I didn't want to call my wife who's sitting in the car and say, honey, I am lost in here. I don't even know what door to go out of. So I thought, you know what? If I go outside, I can figure out where my car is by just looking at the parking lot and just walking around the building. So I started to do that. The only problem was there was some other store that wasn't even a, you know, you couldn't get into it through this mall, but it was attached to it, and the building just went on forever. I'm like, really? There's no way I'm walking around it. So I reluctantly got my phone out, humbled myself, and called my wife and said, Julie, I'm lost. I don't know where I'm at. And my wife is so good with directions. And she wasn't surprised at all that I was lost. She was probably thinking, I bet he's lost in there because I haven't heard him in a long time. <laughs> where did he go? And, yeah, she told me the different stores, where I needed to go, and I made it out. I'm here, right? So that's good. And here's the thing. If I can lose my way in a shopping mall, why do I trust what I know instead of trusting Almighty God? Doesn't that make sense? We like control. That's the issue. That's really the problem. You know, there are some people, if they're sitting on the passenger side of the car, they're terrified of the driver. I, I know a guy like that. He is just, he freaks out. Look at the, look at the street. Don't turn your head to the side. Don't point over. The, don't, just, why? Because he's not in control. He's got to trust in someone. And that's us. We have to trust what God is telling us. And the more we know him, the more we can trust him. God loves us more than we will ever know. He has what's best for our life. It may not be the easiest thing for us, but it is the best. And he has a perfect plan. Like Jacob, all these things are against me? No. God has a plan. We have to trust in him and take comfort in him. God's healing touch is more than just the physical healing. There is that healing that we receive every day as we begin our day, as we end our day, with, in the middle of the day where God touches our hearts and comforts us through the situations we face, through the things we are going through. And here's the thing. We don't come to God with demands. We come to him in love. And we receive what he has for our lives. I love what Solomon said in Proverbs 3. He said, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. 
Fear the Lord and depart from evil, and it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. He wants to direct our paths. That's the wonderful thing. And there are times in our life, I don't know what to do. I don't know where I should go. I don't know if I should take this job. I don't know if I should do that. Pray. God's not up there going, okay, Joe, guess. Take a choice. Do you want door number one, two, or three? No, he wants to direct our lives. It's not necessarily instantaneously that he tells us. But he will show us the directions we're to go on, the things that we're to do. And it's an amazing journey when you look to him. May we have that kind of attitude in our lives that when we wake up in the morning, we're like, Lord, direct me, guide me. And then be open to what he's doing in our lives. You know, we want God to direct us, guide us, and then we kind of turn him off. We forget about him. God's saying, you know, that person that just walked by, he needs Jesus. We're not even aware. Be open to what God is doing. You don't have to scheme or connive or deceive. You walk by faith, you be governed by God, and you can see the great things that God wants to do in your life and through your life. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge him, and he is going to direct your paths. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word this evening. And, Lord, I just pray that it is an encouragement to everyone here, that, Lord, that we can trust in you, that we don't have to rely on our own understanding of things or situations. But, Lord, you are in control. And with our finite minds, we can't know anything, really. But with your infinite mind, You know all things, and thus, as you share with us, direct our lives, direct our paths, we can just trust in you and walk by faith. That healing touch that you've bring to us, not only the healing of salvation, but the healing all the time that you bring to us, to comfort us, encourage us, we thank you. We love you so much, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.